Rick, and this is Burn After Reading. In this episode, I'm going to highlight the media propaganda that took place post-convictions. With that said, let's get started. How did this whole West Memphis 3 Innocence Movement thing start? Well, it started in 1996 with the documentary Paradise Lost. It was directed, produced, and edited by Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinitsky, and distributed by HBO. According to Berlinger, he thought they were making a film about bad children, the inside story of why kids kill, and its ultimate purpose to protect children. That's how it was also pitched to the victims' families, hence why they agreed to appear in it. They, too, wanted to raise awareness so that this hopefully can never happen to anyone else again. However, the filmmakers would eventually change their tune. According to Berlinger in a Huffington Post interview back in 2012, he stated, well, the first few months they spent with the victims' families, it made them even more convinced that the kids were guilty. But then they negotiated access to meet Damien, Jason, and Jesse in prison, and everything changed they started drawing a different conclusion. Some of these conclusions were based in pure conjecture instead of facts. One of the stupid reasons was, well, Jason was too skinny. They felt like Jason couldn't have possibly have done it because he had skinny arms. You know, that is absolutely absurd and ludicrous. Um, I'll give you an example. I'm pretty sure if Skylar Niece was alive today, she could tell you how her two skinny former besties, Sheila Eddy and Rachel Schof, had no problem stabbing her to death with their skinny little arms. This idea that you have to lift weights or be of a certain weight in order to kill someone, just pure, it's idiocy. Anyway, after meeting the West Memphis Three, the filmmakers quickly went from neutral storytellers to impassioned advocates. The film left out crucial details, which I detailed in previous episodes, and even made provable errors. Uh, for example, the West Memphis Police Department interrogated Jesse for over 12 hours before he confessed to the crimes. Jesse confessed 4 hours and 20 minutes into questioning. To summarize, Paradise Lost was a film with the intent to leave doubt about the convictions. They cherry-picked what they wanted for the purpose to get people talking and debating about the justice system and that witch-hunt mob mentality. No longer was the intent of the film about why kids kill or protecting those children. This became quite clear when the filmmakers had the audacity to show uncensored crime scene footage of the murdered boys laying on the ground, hogtied and fully nude. It was exploitation at its worst. As far as raising doubt of who killed Stevie, Michael, and Christopher, the first documentary was mild compared to part two, Paradise Lost, Revelations. Joe and Bruce made no room for doubt about the West Memphis Three's innocence this time. The documentary, if you can even call it that, had their protagonists. The misunderstood Damien, Jason, and Jesse, and the heroic and brave supporters who formed the support website WM3.org. They also had their antagonist, John Mark Byers, the stepfather of Christopher Byers. This time, they focus on him as an alternative suspect. A good part of Revelations showed John Mark Byers hamming it up for the camera, taunting Eccles as he walked past for an appeal hearing, or trashing the West Memphis Three supporters. Byers would commonly whack Shakespearean throughout all his scenes, the most uncomfortable for me was when he returned to the crime scene, made three mock graves of J 
Jason, Damien, and Jesse and lit it on fire. Revelations also planted a seed on whether John Mark Byers could have had something to do with the death of his wife, Melissa. The film succeeded making John Mark Byers a villain, and Byers made it very easy for them. It was later discovered that Byers was paid to behave this way, and he sold his soul and did so without any hesitation. He enjoyed the attention and loved putting on a show. He was a villain, but he wasn't responsible for the murders. The film also had the returning Dan Stidham, the lawyer of Jesse Miss Kelly, who continued to champion for Jesse as he sought out alternative means to the wounds found on the boys' bodies. That's where criminal profiler Brent Turvey comes in. In short, the alter alternative theory is that most of the wounds on the slain children came from animals. Another focus was an interpreted human bite mark. The film speculated if the bite mark came from buyers. It becomes a well-convenient mystery due to buyers now wearing dentures and giving different reasons why his teeth were gone. The film ends with buyers passing a polygraph. Byers gloats, but based on the aftermath, many West Memphis Three supporters still believe he was responsible, um, and it did nothing to end speculation. Before we get into the third documentary, Mara Leverett, author and journalist, who writes more like an advocate would, um, also focused on John Mark Byers as a suspect. She wrote Devil's Knot, published in 2002. She ignored prudent details like the fact that Byers had an alibi. Still, can't let facts get in the way of a good story. Okay, so between Paradise Lost Parts 2 and 3, a tsunami of celebrity support came crashing in. We're talking Peter Jackson... Johnny Depp, Eddie Vedder, Henry Rollins, Trey Parker, Matt Stone, the Dixie Chicks, Marilyn Manson, Dave Navarro, and many others started a call to action to free the West Memphis Three. Um, millions were raised to do that, um, and this leads into Paradise Lost Purgatory. In it, the filmmakers highlighted the first two documentaries before going into the updates of that time. Um, after being caught up, we find that Damien Eccles' defense team, paid for by supporters and celebrities, hired some renowned forensic scientists to collect DNA and other evidence that had never been tested during the 1994 trials in hopes of getting a new one. Uh, it also goes into jury mis you know, the possibility of jury misconduct. Uh, the story also covered John Mark Byers, once a suspect in the court of public opinion, now a reformed and well-embraced West Memphis Three supporter. The film also shifts from one stepfather to another, this time being Terry Hobbs, the stepfather of Stevie Branch. Hobbs becomes the new villain of the story due to a tiny hair found on one of the ligatures. The MTDNA couldn't rule him out as the source of that hair. Um, another hair discovered by a tree stump also couldn't rule out Terry's friend at the time, David Jacoby. I'll get into that along with other DNA testing later. Um, you know, in addition, the film scrutinizes Terry's past uh, the same way it did with John Mark Byers. They used Terry's issues with Pam and her family to raise concerns. Um, also, this time, Pam uh, no longer believed that the West Memphis Three killed her son. Um, now, she doesn't come right out and say Terry did it, but her family does. And that's something that we do need to discuss because um, there are some weird commonalities between Terry Hobbs and John Mark Byers. Um, and people try to use this as a reason that 
that person is a murderer. And I'll give you an example of that. John Mark Byers, ex-wife's family, called the West Memphis Police Department, claiming he may have committed the murders. While Pam's family believed Terry may have committed the crimes, they never called the police to raise those suspicions uh, in that time period. Their accusations on Terry most likely um, comes from just the very ugly issues um, Terry and Pam were having, which at the time got really bad. Um, also, Byers' um, alibis would be scrutinized. Um, for example, Byers had alibis contradicted by his stepson, Ryan Clark, and the Gardners. Uh, people use instances like this to accuse him, and it's no different than Terry, who got some details wrong, you know, well over a decade after the murders um, when questioned about it. You know, you don't have to like Mark or Terry for their past. You don't have to like their characters, but it's important to separate that with the facts regarding the case and who's actually responsible for the murders. Uh, anyways, the film concludes with the granted evidentiary hearing set for December of 2011, but we get a shocking surprise. The West Memphis Three are released in August 2011 due to the rare Alfred plea. Um, and again, I've talked about this in other episodes, but what is an Alfred plea? Well, it's a guilty plea in which the defendant maintains their innocence and does not admit to the criminal act that they were accused of, but admits that the prosecution has sufficient evidence to persuade a judge or jury to find the defendant guilty and thus agrees to be treated as guilty. Like it or not, it's a guilty plea. Now, while supporters proclaim... Some parents, which consisted of John Mark Byers and Pam Hobbs, no longer believe the West Memphis Three committed the crimes. It's important to point out that the majority of the families still believe that they did. This includes Todd and Dana Moore, Stephen Branch Sr., and Terry Hobbs. Now, with Melissa Byers, she passed away long before, so it's uncertain how she'd feel today or at that time of 2011. But she went to her grave believing that the West Memphis Three killed her son. Now, Paradise Lost Purgatory would later become nominated for an Oscar in 2012. Um, I would like to read a letter from the Moors regarding the consideration of nomination. I believe this letter puts into perspective the nightmarish reality that the family faced compared to the fantasy sensationalism of these slanted documentaries. So... Let me read it. Dear Chairman Epstein and members of the documentary branch of the Academy, we are Todd Moore and Dana Moore. Our cherished eight-year-old son, Michael, was brutally murdered on May 5th, 1993 by Jesse Miss Kelly, Damian Eccles, and Jason Baldwin. Miss Kelly was tried and convicted in 1994. Baldwin and Eccles were convicted by a separate jury later that year. All three entered Alfred pleas to our son's murder August 19, 2011. They are now, as they have been for the past 17 years, guilty as a matter of law. They have been guilty as a matter of fact since the moment water flooded Michael's lungs after he was beaten, stripped, hogtied, and then discarded into a stream to drown. Michael was the joy of our lives. In addition to our son... His murderers also tortured and slaughtered two other children, Christopher Byers and Stevie Branch. These three precious victims were classmates and friends, and their loss was a tragedy felt throughout the entire community. 
we are horrified to learn that a documentary that glorifies Michael's killers, Paradise Lost 3, Purgatory, is among 15 documentaries being considered for an Academy Award. Because of public pressure, that exploded due to gross misrepresentations of fact in two previous documentaries. Michael's killers were unjustly able to enter into a plea agreement were released from prison and now pose additional threats to society. This third documentary further insulted the families of these three boys and may lead to further injustice. We implore the Academy not to reward our child's killers and the directors who have profited from one of the greatest frauds ever perpetuated under the guise of a documentary film. We realize that documentaries have a point of view and advocate a position to some degree or another. As with the two before it, the film crossed the line into a cruel hoax that had real-life consequences larger than even those of us who still mourn our horrific losses. It is not art. This film is cynical and exploitative deception that compounds our pain needlessly and rewards those who inflicted it. It and the two films that preceded it are simply tasteless tabloid entertainment presented as a social commentary. We are private individuals. The directors are aware of this because we refused to participate in their last two films. We appeared solely in the first film because the directors lied and told us their purposes would be to protect children. You can imagine our shock and disgust when the first film opened with gruesome and gratuitous images of the crime scenes and remained exploitive as salacious until the credits rolled. It did nothing to promote child welfare. It did everything to support child killers and to benefit monetarily from a ghastly crime. We are hardly the only people they misled or manipulated. Consider what happened to John Mark Byers. He was Christopher Byers' adoptive father. Confrontations between Mr. Byers and Eccles' Supporters at Herrings were staged, of course. Joe and Bruce were there to film these episodes, um, and they would transport Mr. Byers to the Herrings and wire him for sound beforehand. Furthermore, Berlinger and Sinitsky maneuvered Mr. Byers and Eccles' supporters in order to film the anticipated confrontations. Later, after the cameras were packed away, Mr. Byers acted like a different person. Instead of being belligerent, he was affable. When asked about his change in demeanor, Mr. Byers stated that he was supposed to act that way when the cameras were present. Mr. Byers was quoted as saying he received 500 per hour for exclusive interviews. These contrived confrontations and other distortions caused many viewers to believe Mark was the real killer. It had a terrible impact on his life. We brought this to the attention of HBO. Our complaint was ignored because these falsehoods proved lucrative. The complete list of distortions would take a long one. The above examples is illustrative of the manipulation and distortions that are prevalent throughout the entire Paradise Lost franchise. The films are bereft of ethics, principles, or factual accuracies and basis. Publicity from the first two films did generate millions of dollars in donations. Much of that money went towards the defense investigation of the case. Not a single piece of exploitatory evidence was produced. 
In other words, between 10 million and I'm sorry, yeah, 10 million and 20 million has been collected, although no one knows the exact amount collected or how it was spent. In 18 years, nothing was found to clear the names of the actual killers. Late last year, the windfall that went toward the legal defense resulted in the granting of an evidentiary hearing, which was set to be held a few weeks from now. Instead, the murderers opted to initiate a plea negotiation with the state. As a result, they remain convicted of the deaths of three children. We have to note that this situation is similar to the one that confronted the Academy when Capturing the Freedmans was nominated for Best Documentary Film of 2003. Two of the Freedmans' sexual abuse victims presented another open letter to the Academy. Capturing the Freedmans had much more artistic merit and integrity than Paradise Lost 3, Purgatory, yet it did not receive the award. The Academy made the right decision then, and we pray it does so at this time as well. Sincerely, Todd and Dana Moore. After Paradise Lost 3, another documentary came out called West of Memphis, produced by Peter Jackson and directed by Amy Berg. The film covers a lot of what Paradise Lost Purgatory did, but more emphasis was put on Damien and Lori Davis's relationship. They also went after Terry Hobbs more aggressively. Now, let's talk about some of those involved in the West Memphis 3 legal team. Um, I'm not going to mention everyone, but some noteworthy ones. Um, so, you have the Innocence Project, who got involved, which was co-founded by Barry Sheck, one of the lawyers who defended O.J. Simpson at the criminal trial. He was one of the Dream Team attorneys who tried to discredit the integrity of the DNA found at Nicole Brown's residence, uh, O.J.'s Bronco and O.J.'s property, both inside and out. So... I'm going to let you think about that and think about OJ, think about that, and think about the integrity of a project like that. Just think about it. And you also have hotshot lawyer Dennis Ryadin. You know, he took Damian Eccles on as a client. Um, he also represented murderer Phil Spector at one time. Gotta love a guy who's willing to represent scum like that. Um, and then the West Memphis Three defense hired famous forensic pathologist Werner Spitz. Spitz would be known for testifying for the defenses in the trial of Casey Anthony and Phil Spector. Uh, Spitz would be known for a bit of controversy in a CBS Detroit interview and in a documentary interview about John Benet Ramsey in 2016. Spitz accused Burke Ramsey of killing his sister. Now, Although the pathologist had not performed an autopsy on the girl, on October 6, 2016, Burke filed a defamation lawsuit against Spitz, seeking a total of $150 million in damages since Burke had never been considered a suspect by the Boulder police. In 2003, DNA evidence was found from an unidentified male that appeared to have cleared each family member from suspicion, as their DNA was excluded from matching. New DNA testing in 2016 revealed that there was DNA from two persons other than Joe Benet Ramsey. Spitz suggested that wild dogs feasted on Michael, Stevie, and Christopher while they were still alive and submerged underwater. He even said that these dogs grabbed the victims by their heads and slammed and shook them around, bashing their heads on rocks and such, causing the head injuries. And somehow, these dogs magically dumped them back into the water. Yeah. Do the mental gymnastics on that one. The West Memphis Three legal team would also hire world-renowned FBI profiler John Douglas. 
Douglas's profile seemed a custom fit a suspect to match Terry Hobbs. It's not the first time Douglas had done something like this and even got in trouble for it by doing it to a Canadian named Guy Paul Morin. The West Memphis 3 Revelations blog goes into this in more detail, and I'll share the link in the descriptions below, but allow me to share a piece of it. At the time, investigators there working the murder of a girl named Christine Jessup and had a few suspects, but wanted help from Douglas to possibly help them steer the investigation. It was alleged that Douglas somehow found out about one of the suspects, a man named Guy Paul Morin, who was a neighbor of the girl. With this information, he tailored his profile to fit him. The investigators there was so impressed that the profile just so happened to match a suspect in every way, that they pushed Morin as a top suspect. Douglas then instructed the police that they should shake up the suspect and see what he does by releasing a profile to the media, and that this profile should match the suspect completely. So John then tailored a second profile that fit Morin even more closely than before. Then he gave this profile to the police who broadcast it on TV. When it was broadcast, Morin's father mentioned to him that it sounded just like him. This appeared to be a joke, but the police used that to suggest that Morin was guilty of the crime, and that even his family was suspecting him. Douglas also told them how to question the sus suspect, uh, saying they should have a giant photo of a fingerprint in the room blown up nice and big to make it look like they had a match to his prints to the crime. He also said they should put filing cabinets in the room with Morin's name on it big enough for him to read. So, as to give him the impression that they had a mountain of evidence against him, and thus he'd feel compelled to just give up and confess. The police would eventually arrest Morin, um, with many saying that they would never have done so had it not been for the brilliant and spot-on criminal profile which so closely matched him. Guy Paul Morin would spend several years behind bars, proclaiming his innocence until DNA finally proved that he was just as he had always maintained, innocent. Christine Jessup's brother would later accuse Douglas of having custom-fitted the profile to match Morin, which had led the investigation astray. The Canadian courts at one point wanted Douglas to testify about his work on the case in light of the allegation that he tailored his profile. However, Douglas chose not to even reply to messages left by the courts, and since he wasn't a Canadian citizen, they couldn't compel him to testify. In my opinion, that sounds like a chicken shit with no accountability who has no problems putting an innocent man behind bars. You know, a lot gets made out of FBI profilers, um, but they're not exactly always reliable. I would like to list a few FBI profiling that they got dead wrong. The person killing young blacks in Atlanta, Georgia, that was pronounced to be a white male? Hmm. Turned out that was in fact Wayne Williams, a black man. The DC Beltway sniper was pronounced to be a white military sniper. Hmm. Was in fact a black former army truck mechanic, John Allen Muhammad, and his 17-year-old accomplice, Lee Boyd Malvo. The Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. They missed that one by a mile. They were just off by age, which I think was by 10 years, and also education. The Olympic bombing in Atlanta. They focused on the hero who found the bomb 
Richard Jewell. Mm. Turned out it was a creep named Eric Rudolph. So yeah, forgive me if I don't think that these FBI profiling assholes are as accurate as these filmmakers and podcasters do. Like I always say, perception isn't always reality. Let's also go over some misconceptions that people and media have perpetuated over the last years. The state forcing the West Memphis Three to take the Alford plea? This is utterly false. The defense went to the new prosecutor, which was Scott Ellington, in the summer of 2011 and proposed the deal. Ellington accepted it, much to the dismay of some family members. No one forced the West Memphis Three to plead guilty. It was their representation's own idea. In the in-chambers hearing prior to the public Alford plea hearing on August 19, 2011, it is repeated by the state that the Alford plea was the brainchild of the defense. The defense didn't have to propose this plea to the state. If their case was so strong that it would have merited a new trial, why not do that and get full exoneration? Because they knew they didn't have a shot, and this became a game of poker with the new prosecutor, not experienced with this case, and the defense won that bluff. Some will try to claim, well, they took the deal because Damien was dying, and that's utter bullshit. Prove to me he was dying. What exactly was he dying from? It's all posturing and smoke and mirrors to justify the guilty plea. Again, I want proof that Damien was dying but we all know I'm not going to get that, or any of us, none of us is going to get that. One of the big things I hear about all the time is that, well, if the West Memphis Three were really guilty, the state wouldn't have allowed them to walk free. Yeah, well, states do allow murderers to walk free. In 1966, Gertrude Benazeski was convicted of first-degree murder and life in prison for the torture and death of 16-year-old Sylvia Likens. It even had a retrial where the result was the same. Still, a parole board in 1985 decided to free her, much to the dismay of Likens' family and the public. Not enough to convince you that they let murderers walk free? Well, how about Eric Smith, who at age 13 murdered a four-year-old named Derek Robbie in 1993. He was convicted of second-degree murder in 1994 and sentenced to the maximum term then available for a juvenile murderer. A minimum of nine years to life in prison. In October 2021, Smith was granted parole after 27 years of incarceration and was freed in early 2022. So yes, states do in fact let murderers walk free, even with a life sentence. Here's another one. Terry Hobbs' DNA was found at the crime scene. Uh, that's actually inconclusive. Thomas Fedor, forensic serologist hired by the West Memphis Three, stated that the hair on one of the ligatures could have come from Hobbs, but it was weak evidence. He would even state that he didn't believe it would be enough to convict Hobbs. So why is that? Well... At that time, 1.5% of the U.S. population could also be the source of that hair. That would be 4.5 million Americans at that particular time. For the sake of argument, let's say that it did belong to Terry. It wouldn't be strange at all due to secondary transfer. It's common for people who go to each other's houses and hang out or, or wherever they are. And again, the West Memphis Three Revelations blog explains it perfectly. 
According to case documents, there are additionally 26 other hairs found on the victims that could have originated from the biological parents and family members of the victims, but could not be set apart due to the type of DNA testing used. The only reason Hobbs was singled out was because he was a step-parent, and thus not biologically related, and as such could be shown that any hair that was attributed to him was not from one of the victims and make it appear like he was the odd one out. In 1993 and 1994, the prosecution DNA tested the evidence that they had against the family members of the victims, which included Terry Hobbs, who freely gave his DNA to be tested. At no time did Hobbs object, and his DNA is shown on this state crime lab report from 1994, having been given in October of 1993. Terry Hobbs has to date also provided his finger and palm prints to investigators, and neither the police or the defense could attribute any physical evidence to him. The only item the defense ever had was a single tiny hair fragment that, was li that likely isn't even his in the first place. Comparatively, there was DNA that could be attributed to the West Memphis Three, such as a t-shirt belonging to Jesse Miss Kelly that had a drop of human blood on it, which was consistent with the blood of Michael Moore. Human blood from two different people was also found mixed together on a necklace belonging to Damien Eccles. When tested for DNA, the results showed one of the samples was Damien's own blood, and the second person's blood may have come from Stevie Branch. A DNA mixture also consistent with being from two people was located on the ligatures used to bind Stevie Branch. The results showed that it could have been Damien's DNA there as well, but those results were dismissed because other items during the same test were likely contaminated by those handling the bodies. Speaking of contamination, the West Memphis Three defense likes to play the inconclusive game to draw a conclusion of innocence. Bode Technology conducted a test of Stevie's ligatures and penile swab and Michael's penile swab. It was conducted by three independent analysis. And I really would like to focus on the last part of this report. In reviewing all of this data, it is noted that the quality and quantity of the results obtained are very limited and require extreme caution in interpretation. In rendering an opinion of this data, one cannot overlook the facts in this case. The three victims in this case were nude and submerged in water for nearly 18 to 24 hours prior to discovery. It is very unlikely that any interpretable DNA profile other than that due to the contamination or that of the victims would be recoverable. Based on the Bode's analysis letter, it is clear that the data provided is questionable at best. The analysis used possible and suggest to describe the data. Amy documents that there is clearly a possible mixture present, not a mixture present. She also indicates elevated baseline, primer peaks, and imbalance. It is clear that the data represented thus far by Bode, referenced above, is suspect at best. It is well documented that limited qualities of DNA as noted in these samples and demonstrated by the quality of partial at best and else obtained in this case is too limited to render any opinion for comparison purposes. It is my opinion that the analysis and possible mixtures are due to contamination or effects and no conclusive interpretation is possible. So there you have it. 
What you get in the end is pro-defense propaganda nonsense, which draws more attention than the truth. Because sadly, we live in an age where content creators like documentary filmmakers are not challenged by the audience. They simply accept it at face value. The viewers just awe and gasp at what they're shown, not understanding that the content creators are doing what is comparable to a magician doing a clever parlor trick. And I think that's a good comparison. A lot of true crime documentary filmmakers are like magicians, but no matter how impressive the trick is, it's an illusion, a clever deception. It's not real. Perception is not always reality. So I challenge you, the listener, be smart. Don't be afraid to look into what you are presented because who you might be advocating for and taking pictures at some event just might be a killer. Until next time.